Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, the May 25th New York Times reports that India's leading Bharatiya Janata Party is pressuring Twitter to censor and sanction anyone posting critically about Prime Minister Narendra Modi. An after-dusk visit by officers from India's elite anti-terrorism police unit to Twitter's New Delhi offices wasn't so much legally binding as symbolic. The Times explained, sending a clear message that India's powerful ruling party is becoming increasingly upset with Twitter because of the perception that the company has sided with critics of the government. In that effort to cowl those calling attention to its failings, the Times said Modi's government is following the path of some other countries trying to control how and where messages can spread on social media. For first example, quote, the Russian government said it would slow access to Twitter, one of the few places where Russians openly criticize the government, close quote. Lest you miss it, the subtext of this kind of storytelling is that it's a mark of an undemocratic society that you can't access all kinds of perspectives, not just on your own country, but on any country, and freely make up your own mind. That's a misleading premise, of course, and though India is just one example, it's a powerful one. The country is the new epicenter of the COVID pandemic, a major vaccine exporter that can't vaccinate its own people, and a potential example of how and why austerity and disaster capitalist programs fail. Yet U.S. corporate news media don't seem to see a story worth telling beyond how Modi might hold on to power despite some unfortunate missteps. We'll talk around corporate media about current events in India with historian, author, and journalist Vijay Prashad, executive director at the Tricontinental Institute for Social Research and author of, among many titles, The Poorer Nations, A Possible History of the Global South. That's coming up, but first we'll take a look back at some recent press. A May 18th editorial in the New York Times condemning New York City pride organizers for excluding police contingents from the annual parade is not just baffling, but dangerous. As Stephen Keegan writes for FAIR.org, the Times editorial board, in a stroke, managed to disregard both historical context and the realities that queer people face today. Pride parades, the editors wrote, are about the joy of belonging— But that's under threat because of pride organizers. Quote, today, at a time when Republican legislatures are attacking transgender rights across the country, it's a strange moment for the LGBTQ community to be closing the door on some of its own and missing an opportunity to broaden its coalition. Close quote. The paper acknowledged the history of police violence against the LGBTQ community, The uprising following the 1969 NYPD raid on the Stonewall Inn is the reason the Pride Parade began in the first place and the fact that it continues to this day with ongoing 
tensions between Pride participants and police officers, and the fact that protesters said officers used pepper spray against them just last year at the Queer Liberation March. But, editors explained, then-NYPD Commissioner James P. O'Neill in 2019, quote, took a landmark step in apologizing for what it did during the Stonewall Uprising. Close quote. So why aren't Pride organizers welcoming the NYPD with open arms? Times editors conclude, quote, the NYPD's relationship with the LBGTQ community in New York has been marked by missteps and abuse at times, which have bred distrust. The long road to repairing that relationship and ensuring the safety of the city's gay community isn't made easier by deepening the divide. Close quote. In other words, the paper saw the abusive relationship here and condemned the abused for kicking out the abuser. The Times surely knows that since 2019, the year of O'Neill's apology, the NYPD has been involved in a slew of anti-LGBTQ incidents, including a leader of the NYPD's Office of Equal Employment Opportunity, being caught posting homophobic and other hateful comments on a message board that's frequented by city cops. Those actions, however, didn't merit mention by the Times board. What is labeled devastating in this published opinion is not transgender people being abused, arrested, and even killed by police, but an officer being denied the opportunity to march in uniform alongside other cops. What's a worrisome trend, two times editors, isn't police violence towards queer people, but LGBTQ activists challenging the ability of police forces to whitewash that violence by having gay contingents in pride parades. The Times insisted, quote, it's a poke in the eye at law enforcement more than a meaningful action to address police violence or foster a dialogue about law enforcement reform. These moves do nothing to celebrate and demonstrate solidarity within the LGBTQ community, close quote. So how should NYPD violence against LGBTQ people be addressed? Well, don't ask the New York Times editorial board. We searched for editorials upbraiding the NYPD for its treatment of LGBTQ people and didn't find a single one, going back at least 40 years. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. If you read recent U.S. corporate news media coverage of India, you can see that the country is in peril with some half a million new COVID cases a day and terrible shortages of oxygen and vaccines. And you can glean that the country in peril is an official ally, not an enemy. India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi, U.S. readers are told, handled COVID's first wave well, but subsequent lapses and missteps like declaring victory over the virus in January and holding massive rallies, are now an increasing source of anger. Modi's aura of political invulnerability has been tarnished, we're told. The death and suffering of millions is, quote, challenging his vision of a proud, self-reliant nation, close quote. U.S. media devote considerable, if problematic, attention to the Middle East, to Central and South America. But with India, it's different. 
as with sub-Saharan Africa, press attention is erratic. And if you don't hear about a place in a regular way, well, forget about getting a range of views or building any kind of complex understanding with which to view emerging events. Here to help us put U.S. media's current moment of focus on India in some kind of broader context is historian Vijay Prashad, executive director at the Tricontinental Institute for Social Research, chief editor at New Delhi-based publisher Leftward Books, and author of many titles, including The Poorer Nations, A Possible History of the Global South. He joins us now by phone. Welcome to Counterspin, Vijay Prashad. Great to be with you. Thanks a lot. Well, along with a truncated historical timeline, U.S. corporate news media generally reflect a great man theory of of history and of current events. You know, Modi might be hurt by COVID. Modi didn't play it right in West Bengal. Events happen involving millions of actors, but U.S. readers hear it all through a specific kind of prism. It's a big opening question, but if you're trying to explain current crises in India to someone, where do, where do you start? What do you see as the most important context for something like Modi's actions in the pandemic, for example? Well, you know, there's two ways to approach that question. One is the long-term way, of course, and the other is the short-term. In the long term, I think it's important to register that everything doesn't lie in Modi's lap. The Indian governments over the last 25 to 30 years have really worked out a policy of austerity when it comes to public health. So India spends ridiculously low amounts. The government spends under 2% of the GDP on health care a ridiculously, ludicrously low amount. There's a program called the ASHA program of ASHA workers. These are accredited social health workers, you know, essentially public health workers. Now, ASHA workers, almost 100% women, go from house to house in villages, small towns, cities, and so on, and they check to see if children have been inoculated, if there's any health problems. They play an essential role in the fabric of the health of the country. Now, they are not even paid as workers. They're treated as volunteers, and they're given an honorarium. They receive no training. They receive no equipment, nothing. During the pandemic, for instance, they had to work without protective equipment. They had to work without gloves. They had no masks, nothing. They had to make it all themselves, and on top of that, paid an honorarium. I'm just putting this example out there to show you the long-term attrition of healthcare. The privatization of healthcare in India is extreme. India has the world's largest out-of-pocket healthcare system. That means that when you go to see a doctor, you're paying more out of your pocket than anywhere else in the world. There's barely any social insurance. Forget healthcare for all and so on. So that's a long-term thing, Janine. That predates the Modi administration. Although Modi's governments since 2014 have accelerated this policy of privatization of health care, the destruction of public health, and then the cost of public health management placed on these working class women has been extraordinary. Secondly, and more, I think, around Modi himself, 
is that he took a very callous attitude towards the pandemic from the beginning. You know, they suggested that people should go bang pots and pans and scare the virus away. They suggested that, you know, you could just drink cow urine and that somehow was going to immunize you from the virus. Very callous, almost stupid, incompetent, dangerously incompetent statement. And finally, after the pandemic had emerged by, say, February, March of 2020, the government literally did nothing, nothing to hasten the production of, say, medical oxygen, ventilators, beds, emergency hospitals. They did nothing. So that when the second wave came in early 2021, suddenly the country was out of something as elementary as medical oxygen. You don't require rocket science to make medical oxygen. You merely require small little machines that are decentralized. But they had made no attempt to upscale hospitals to make sure every hospital had its own medical oxygen production unit. They did nothing. You know, that's the level of incompetence that's really almost criminal, if you, if you don't mind me saying so. You know, people have been saying we would like to see a tribunal uh, that studies these, the total incompetence, callous incompetence of the government in this regard. But I want to emphasize again that, yes, this government totally sat on its hands, is responsible for the carnage that befalls the Indian people. It's not just this government. It's been a long policy of the attrition of health care, of public health care, and the weight of all this placed on the workers who have had to work under extraordinarily difficult conditions heroically. They get praised in rhetoric, but nobody's talking about their salaries being raised. Nobody's talking about their conditions being improved. You know, I think if anybody just tuned in halfway through that, they might imagine that you were talking about the United States. You know, long-term underinvestment in public health, anti-science, let's call them ignorant statements from powerful public leaders. There's a lot of resonance there, I think, for a lot of listeners. And then I learned that vaccinated Indians who got vaccinations got a certificate with Modi's face on it. And and it just kind of sounds a lot like Donald Trump in some ways. And, and also about the point about understanding what predated this particular leader. How meaningful do you find that comparison? Is that a useful comparison internationally in terms of maybe resistance? It's an interesting comparison. Of course, it has immense resonance, you know, whether you're looking at Modi or, well, let's say Trump again. And I'd like to say a few things about that, but also Yair Bolsonaro in Brazil and so on. There's an incredible resonance there, of course, without a doubt. That's true. But I do want to say that it's not just the resonance of those broad features that are there. The underlying situation is equally important, which is, you know, this really studied devastation of public health. As you say, in the United States, in India and so on, that decimation of public health, anti-science approach, this actually, the kind of Modi's or the Trump's or the Bolsonaro's come out of the wreckage of neoliberal policy, the wreckage of austerity, you know, they are the product of that. I don't see Modi as the product of anything other than the wreckage of austerity, long-term austerity. That's what produced him. He personally comes out of a bilious, anti-Muslim, very hateful ideology, in the same way that Trump is 
in a sense, a standard bearer of white supremacy. But it wasn't actually white supremacy that propels Trump into the presidency. It's the decades of attrition of public life, the destruction of social life, the destruction of bonds and so on. That's what gives the opening for these people to arise. And look, you know, in the United States, Trump loses the election. You have Mr. Biden appear. Mr. Biden comes with a different kind of agenda. But on so many of these issues, you're going to see the continuation of those conditions. You're not going to see the attempt to create a bigger public sector in medical care and things like that. You're certainly not going to see any internationalism. At the root of a different kind of approach to medical care is not only public spending should you know, rise in the medical system, but we need a more internationalist medical system because other people may have had discoveries that we should be able to learn from. You know, that's why, for instance, in case of the vaccines, it's important to have a waiver on intellectual property. I personally believe that intellectual property actually stifles innovation. It stifles the advance of human development. We are right now in no position to make an argument for abandoning intellectual property. You know, we're not powerful enough for that. But at least we can start by having a waiver on the vaccine. India produces 60% of the world's vaccines, but Indian population at the current rate will not be vaccinated before February 2024. Now, Janine, it's important to, to remind people that we're living right now in 2021, you know, uh, people may forget yeah. that because yeah. in the pandemic, a certain haze sets into your brain. You know, you, you don't fully remember which year <laughs> it is, let alone which month or whatever. But I'm talking about February 2024, Janine, not, you know, February 2023, not February 2022. February 2024 at the rate of vaccination, that's despite the fact that India produces more than half the vaccines in the world. Right. So you need both more public spending in each country, but we need an internationalist approach. You know, we can't have this national approach. So what Mr. Biden is promoting now, in that sense, is a Trumpian solution to the crisis. That let's, you know, just have America first, and then we'll see about the rest later. This is all very narrow-minded and short-sighted. And it's, it's an appalling situation wherein, as a consequence of that, India cannot even begin to exit this crisis unless vaccination rates go up. Currently, between 2 and 3% of the population is vaccinated. Think about that. It's incredible. And part of like a, a baseline to having things change, because the narrow conversation is within the media and the kind of official conversation that we're hearing. And you and I both know that lots of folks are having an entirely different conversation outside and around these dominant narratives. And the question is, how much are we allowed to affect the broader dialogue? And so it's about who do we hear from, you know? And and, and that brings me back to medias, where lots of folks are getting their information, that top-down frame, you know? So, for example, the New York Times is describing this month's victory by the Al-India Trinamool Congress Party in West Bengal. They described that as dealing a blow to Modi because that state was a prize that his party desperately wanted to win. You're not hearing, in other words, what the people of the state wanted to win desperately or otherwise. And I'm wondering if media coverage were multivocal, even just to include other Indian politicians, you know, even just to include other Indian voices, 
you've written about the southern state of Kerala as a kind of counterexample to things that if we were hearing more voices from India, how could that shift folks' understanding or, or thoughts about what's happening and what's possible? Of course, I'm 100% in favor of broadening the conversation, you know, having more voices coming, listening to different things that are happening in India. I understand that, look, India is far from the United States. Uh, it's not going to be coverage that most people would follow closely or, or anything like that. I, I understand that. I, I mean, it, it's, it's crazy to imagine that they would have a rich and, and multivocal coverage of what's happening in India. Mm. On the other hand, mm-hmm. I also think that there's a way in which it could be not as bad as it is. Mm-hmm. So, yes, I mean, look, the story on West Bengal, which is my state, I was born, brought up in West Bengal, Mr. Modi's party actually made enormous gains. It's become the leading opposition there. That needs to be understood. Not that it suffered a defeat. It didn't suffer a defeat. It actually gained. He made enormous gains. They didn't win the government, but they made enormous gains. That's chilling. That's worrying for people. People are worried about that. Into West Bengal, they've brought a kind of uh, Hindu right-wing politics. They've made it okay to say, I'm a Hindu, I don't like Muslims, things like that. You know, it's troubling. It's in the same way, Janine, as in the United States after the last presidential election, there's this assumption that somehow Trump has disappeared. You know, that all those supporters of Trump, all the people who voted for him, they're gone. Why? Because it's first past the post. Who's won now represents the country. That's a total misunderstanding of what's happening in the United States. There's still the grip of Trump amongst large sections of the population. That exists. The social conditions that produce Trump still exist. We have to look reality in the eye. You know, it can't be <laughs> saying, well, you know, especially the liberal media, so quick to declare victory for liberalism. When liberalism today is so weakened by its incapacity to face the fact it has no answers to the economic crisis, you know. Uh, why is, uh, in a country like India, why is the Congress party, you know, the, the liberal political party, why aren't they able to come out there, make a robust statement about the need to fully fund the ASHA worker program, for instance. So why don't they come out there and demand that the government just say, look, we're not going to heat intellectual property on this vaccine. We're just going to, you know, ramp up production because we don't care. The primary thing now is to save the lives of our people. No, the liberal political party will sit on the whole thing about the importance of international law when it comes to this vaccine question and intellectual property. When it's about international law and the bombing of Iraq or international law and sanctions on Venezuela, nobody evokes international law. You know, it's the goose and the gander. International law is upheld when it comes to the interests of economic elites. International law is not upheld when it comes to serious political matters, such as warfare and intimidation of other countries. Why is it that on one hand, you're so committed to international law, and on the other, you're not? And I think that kind of thing is what the media needs to bring out. I get it. You can't get all the details straight about every part of the world. But at least don't be hypocritical in the way you cover some of these issues. Well, I just wanted to finally say that I want to turn people on to alternative sources of media because of the structural built-in limitations that you're just describing, you know. And I and I wanted to just offer as an example of that The Washington Post, the Democracy Dies in Darkness, Washington Post, they're kind of 
backgrounder thumbnail graph in a recent story characterized things this way. They said, quote, Modi swept to a landslide re-election victory in 2019, offering Indians a muscular brand of nationalism that views India as a fundamentally Hindu country rather than the secular republic envisioned by its founders. He has cultivated an image as a singular leader capable of bold decisions to protect and transform the country, close quote. And that's just kind of... You know, the Washington Post's like, if you're going to think about a thing about Modi, here's what you think about Modi, you know. And I, and I just wonder, I, you know, it's too big to end on. But I don't think the Post is thinking that muscular nationalism, I don't think they're trying to telegraph that as a bad thing, you know. So despite democracy dying in darkness, despite their saying that they're super critical of Donald Trump and all that he stands for, it just seems like this theory of uh, of the great man is inviolate in media and is going to affect coverage of India no matter what going forward. Well, in the 1970s, Henry Kissinger said it plainly that it's good for South America to be ruled by military dictatorships, but we don't need to have a military dictatorship in the United States. In the same way, liberals in the United States will say, well, don't want the appearance of a, of a strongman leader in the United States. You know, don't want a Trump. But maybe in India they need it, and it's good for them, and that's the nature, that's the level of their de- democracy. There's a lot of this sort of racist understanding of political development and so on, you know, that you don't want the appearance of a strongman inside the advanced capitalist countries, but having a strongman in India or having a military rule in Thailand well, that's just the way they are. You know, that's their level of, of social development and so on. It's an offensive way of looking at the world because they wouldn't say muscular nationalism good for the United States, certainly not the Washington Post. You know, um, that's not how they understand themselves. But I would like to say that, you know, you want alternative or independent reporting. There's a ton of it. You know, I work for a project called Globetrotter. We produce tons of reporting done by people who live in different countries, whether they're in Chile or Palestine or or wherever, and these are syndicated stories. Our problem isn't that we are not writing stories. Our problem is we just can't break through the blockade. There is a news blockade. It's not just on social media. You know, it's not just on the web, meaning Google search engines and so on. We just can't get discovered. You know, people automatically assume that the majors are the only game in town. And for us, discovery is really difficult. And we don't promote each other in the way of discovery. And that's a problem. I mean, we've got to break our own barriers, our own intellectual property hang-ups. You're at FAIR. I'm writing for Globetrotter. We are putting these things out together. You know, there's no competition. We've got to have a way of having discovery being the thing that we walk through and not allow ourselves to be always intimidated by the majors who are the only ones they suck up all the air in the atmosphere. I'm going to end on that up note. Uh, We've been speaking with Vijay Prashad. He's executive director at Tricontinental Institute for Social Research, chief editor at Leftward Books, and author of, among many other titles, The Poorer Nations, A Possible History of the Global South. Thank you so very much, Vijay Prashad, for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thanks a lot, Janine. Great to be with you. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin's produced by FAIR, the national media watch group based in New York. The show's engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.